You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello there, and welcome along to a bittersweet episode of Attaboy Clarence, a rather unexpected episode in many ways, because this week we lost another star in the Hollywood heavens. Miss Angela Lansbury, who became so famous and ubiquitous during the 80s and 90s on Murder, She Wrote, that many forget that she was one of the golden age of Hollywood's last remaining links. Yes, all the way back in the 1940s, there she was, a contract player for MGM at the age of just 17 when she made her screen debut in 1944's Gaslight opposite Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer. What a start to making films. And from that moment on, she was never really away from screens in one way or another. And I mean, talk about someone who's done it all. She co-starred alongside the likes of Catherine Hepburn, Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Betty Davis, and even Elvis Presley. I remember her most vividly as Miss Price in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and my children remember her as Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast, and as Aunt Adelaide, Nanny McPhee, and everyone in the world knows her as Jessica Fletcher, the author and sleuth in Murder, She Wrote, which ran from 1984 to 1996, 264 episodes. And who could forget her crossover episodes with Tom Selleck's Magnum? One of those figures in the world of 20th century culture, much like the Queen of England, who seems to have always been present for everyone. And indeed, we'll get to see her one more time next month in Glass Onion, a Knives Out story, proving that she's still as popular as ever. Well, to kick off this brief tribute episode to Angela Lansbury, here she is in Till the Clouds Roll By from 1946, singing How Do You Like to Spoon With Me? a song she reprised much later in Murder, She Wrote, in an episode where she played Jessica Fletcher's cousin, Emma. I don't know why I am so very shy I always was demure I never knew what silly lovers do No flirting I didn't In all my life I never kissed a man But now at last I'm going to break the ice So how'd you like to try? How'd you like to spoon with me? I'd like to How'd you like to spoon with me? Well, rather Sit beneath an oak tree, large and shiny Call me little tootsie, woodsy baby How'd you like to walk and scoot? I would. Dangle me upon your knee. How'd you like to be my lovely darling? How'd you like to be with me? Apologize. 
the sun was rising. And that's I... that's lovely, Anne, but it, it's not what I want to hear. Play, you you know, you know. Oh, Geoffrey, not here. Look, it's so many years ago. I, I'm not sure I can remember the words. Well, I can. I don't know why I am so very shy. I always was demure. I never knew what silly lovers do. No flirting I'd endure. In all my life, I never kissed a man. I never winked my eye. But now, at last, I'm going to break the ice. So how'd you like to try? How'd you like to spoon with me? How'd you like to spoon with me? Sit beneath an oak tree, large and shady. Call me little tootsie, wootsie, baby. How'd you like to hug and squeeze? Dangle me upon your knees. How'd you like to be my lovey-dovey? How'd you like to spoon with me? Now, of course, usually I let you do the guessing when it comes to who the hell is that Hollywood legend. But I think it's kind of redundant in this case, as of course it's going to be Miss Angela Lansbury. The fun comes this time, then, in seeing if the panel can work out her identity. And here we go. All right, panel, one question at a time in turn, moving clockwise, and we'll begin things with uh, Bennett, sir. Well, this is a season when a great many plays come to Broadway. Have you got any connection with a play that is open this season or is about to open? No. One down and nine to go, Miss Francis. Are you in the theater? Yes. Mr. Allen, are you in the movies? Yes. Miss Lindstrom. Are you best known for your roles as a comedian? No. Two down and eight to go, Mr. Sir. Should be. <laughs> of course. When you uh, appear in pictures, uh, is it your wont to raise your lovely voice in song? No. Three down and seven to go, Miss Francis. Are you, however, raising your voice in song this season in a play on Broadway? Yes. Mr. Allen? Is it a, therefore, uh, not the smartest question I ever asked, but since I'm in the middle, I might as well finish it, a musical. <laughs> yes. Sherlock Holmes has nothing on me. Miss <laughs> Lindstrom? Are you in a play that was a very famous uh, book and has been made into a film by a very famous Hollywood actress? I know. We'll say it. Angela Lansbury. Right! Wonderful stuff. Of course they got it. Well, on to a couple of Lansbury hits from the Golden Age that might slip past you in the hubbub the moment. First up, a 1946 drama in which Angela Lansbury starred alongside William Powell, Esther Williams, Frank McHugh, and James Gleason. This is a sweet, almost parallel universe version of James Cagney's The Roaring Twenties. Once again, we're along for the ride as a returning soldier 
tries to make it in the world of the legit, only to be forced to turn to a shady life in MGM's The Hoodlum Saint. Why did you kiss me? To convince that gateman I belong here. Well, don't you? No. So you just rushed up to the first girl you saw, shouted congratulations, and went into your greeting, huh? Yeah, I hate to be thrown out of places. Well, why did you want to come here? I need a job. Employers in this town are seldom in. Must be the uniform. Powell plays Major Terry O'Neill, a former newspaper man with high ideals who returns from World War I hoping to pick up his life where he left off. But as many returning servicemen found when they got back, life becomes a series of slammed doors and refusals. Terry finally works his way back into the world of success alongside shady businessman Mr. Mulberry. Your stories are great. Accurate, funny, lots of heart. People read them who don't get a hang about Mulberry. You're apt to find yourself up to a hundred a week. A hundred a week? I can remember when that was dough. <laughs> Mr. Larison, you've been swell. And I'm grateful for everything. Oh, now, wait a minute. You haven't quite got me. That raise depends on... Ah, I'm afraid that you haven't quite got me. I'm moving. Moving? Mm-hmm. Well, where to? New York? Well, the blade's a better sheet than any of those New York rags. Yes, but there's a guy up there named Louis J. Malbury. But we've been tearing him apart. Perhaps it's time to put him back together. Oh, you can't do this. You used my newspaper to expose the man. Now you want to put in with him. What kind of operator are you? Big, I hope. It's while working for Mr. Malbury in New York that Terry meets nightclub singer Dusty, played by Angela Lansbury, who's instantly smitten with the smooth Terry. How was the song? Hmm? Oh, yes. Yes, that was better, Dusty. How about just a little more heart? If you give this heart just a little more attention, maybe I'd be able to sing the way you like. Maybe I'd like it too much. I'd be satisfied with half the time you give that window. What's Malbury got? I haven't. Twenty-five million dollars. Will that keep your feet warm? Love complicates matters, of course. Terry's always been in love with Kay, played by Esther Williams, but when he works for Malbury, it creates a rift between them, and Dusty gets Terry on the rebound. But what will happen when Terry's fortunes are reversed, when the Wall Street crash comes? Who will stick by Terry, and who will throw him to the dogs? Now, I'm not suggesting that Angela Lansbury is the main attraction in this film, but she's certainly the standout in terms of acting performances. Come for the Powell, but be entranced by Angela Lansbury. Her character is by far the most interesting thing here. She goes from starry-eyed and hopelessly in love to genuinely chilling in the third act, after being embittered by Terry's callous treatment of her. The last act sees Dusty taking her revenge against him by robbing a charity and framing Terry for the crime. And her transformation is quite brilliant. Somehow, despite her turn to villainy, she comes out of the other side as something of an angel. You'll adore her, especially in her final scene, which is a total crowd pleaser. As for the film itself, it's slightly baggy, slightly overlong. The whole saint element that features in the title comes from a plot device where the criminals in town are represented by Saint Dismas, one of the thieves who died alongside Jesus at the crucifixion. This part of the film does cause a rather heavy step into drama from what was a bouncy little tale in the first act. 
I'm not entirely sure if it's successful or not, but it does slow things down considerably. However, yet again, the film is brightened up when Angela Lansbury gets back into the story and the revenge plot she puts into action really livens things up. It's a sweet little film. It's not very well remembered today, but worth the ticket price alone for Angela Lansbury. So amid the murder she wrote and Beauty and the Beast rewatches in the next few weeks, do try and slip in a viewing of The Hoodlum Saint from 1946. It's a strange hybrid of the Roaring Twenties and It's a Wonderful Life, and Angela is a total scene-stealer in it. On to 10th Avenue Angel from 1948, in which Angela starred alongside the finest child actor ever, Margaret O'Brien. Here's a clip. Welcome to New York is the greeting on top of that 5th Avenue bus. Welcome to the city of contrast, the exciting harbor, the serene statue, the turbulent roar of Broadway and the peace of Central Park. Tall buildings standing like sentinels on guard over its playgrounds and museums. This is Riverside Drive, uptown. Nice, isn't it? This is 10th Avenue, downtown. Not so nice. It was down here they tell a story typical of this city of contrast. It was down here I first met a kid they called the 10th Avenue Angel. The year was 1936, one of the Depression years. Again, we're circling Depression-era New York, and deep in the tenements, a small girl called Flavia is doing her best to keep up the spirits of her neighbors, who are all struggling to see blue skies amid the gray. Amongst them are her parents, Helen and Joseph, the local newspaper stand operator, Blind Mac, played by Reese Williams, and her aunt, Susan, played by Angela Lansbury, who's been waiting patiently for her true love, Steve, to return to her after spending a year traveling the world. Thing is, that part isn't exactly true. Brother, what'll she do if she finds out Steve didn't go around the world, that he's been in jail all these months? We've kept it from us so far. What are you going to do about it? Help him to forget. Show him that in spite of what happened, I love him more than I did before he went away. I'm sure he couldn't love you any more than he did when he left. If he doesn't propose to you right away, I'm afraid Flavia's going to do it for him. She's decided that you and Steve ought to get married next Thursday. <laughs> when did she make up her mind? Oh, she's been talking about you two getting married for the last year or so. Before then, she had another idea. Such as? She was going to marry Steve herself. <laughs> but when Steve gets home, he decides that rather than drag Susan through what will undoubtedly be an unhappy existence, he's going to do the honorable thing and set her free. I'm an ex-con. Can't take a glass of beer or drive an automobile. Every morning I have to report to some parole officer and say, Mister, I've been a good boy all week. Oh, but it'll be over in six months, Steve. And we'll be happy. That's all that matters. Sorry, lady. I saw you up the street talking to Dan Matson, didn't I? Yeah, I was talking to Dan. You were on parole. I was just passing the time of day with him. Look, Abbott. You made a nice living driving a cab, didn't you? Well, suppose I did. Then you drove a cab when some of the boys knocked off a freight car full of silk. For that, you got 18 months up the river. Now you're out, try and stay out. Don't worry. I'm gonna stay out. Your own mother couldn't give you better advice than that. Well, there's the whole story for you. Oh, no, I'm not taking you on any honeymoon where you have to check in with the cops three times a day. 
Young Flavia can't stand to see her aunt's heart broken and sets out to repair the love between Steve and Susan, teaching them through a series of heartfelt life lessons that when you truly love someone, nothing should ever stand in the way of your being together. Suppose I get up there on the platform and some guy yelled out, how are things up the river? Show us how you did the lockstep or how do you think the boys up in Sing Sing are getting along? No, no, I guess I better skip it. Steve, you're going away and I'm going to remember you. But I'd much rather remember a big man that was booed off a platform than a little guy that was afraid to get up on it. So this film might be headed by Margaret O'Brien, but once again, it's Angela Lansbury who really shines. In one of those numerous roles of the 40s wherein a brave young woman is forced to teach her man a thing or two about pride, it's the kind of role that could be lost on a lesser actor or end up as completely forgettable, but Angela Lansbury is really something. A crushed flower who picks herself up and fights for her happiness on the rain-sodden streets. She's wonderful. The film is a charming little fairy tale about fairy tales. Its main plot is Susan and Steve and will they find their way back to happiness, but about halfway through, it takes a sharp turn into the power of belief and the end of childhood. That fateful moment when you stop believing in magic and Santa Claus, and you realize that all of those tales we're told as youngsters are put there by our parents in the hopes that we'll retain a sense of wonder about the world. And the questions it raises about whether this is right or wrong are actually quite interesting. It ends on one of those schmaltzy Hollywood miracles that I've always been a sucker for. And to cap it all off, this miracle takes place at Christmas time. Yes, behind all of that, it's a Christmas film and one that's always overlooked at Yuletide. So do check out 10th Avenue Angel if you like things sentimental and sweet and touched by angels then this is an underseen Angela Lansbury gem that'll give you all the feels. Now, for those of you who are patrons of this show, 10th Avenue Angel and The Hoodlum Saint will be part of the classic movie library as of Monday, so available for you at any time to watch. Well, we couldn't possibly leave this small tribute to Angela Lansbury without hearing one of her radio appearances from the golden age of Hollywood. And what a thing of beauty we have today, literally. In 1947, Angela Lansbury starred in A Thing of Beauty, a spine-chilling episode of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And so, worlds away from the sentimental feels of the movies I've told you about, let's head on over to Suspense for A Thing of Beauty, starring Angela Lansbury. And I'll see you afterwards. Yes, Roma wines taste better because only Roma selects from the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. And now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma Wines presents Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Miss Angela Lansbury in A Thing of Beauty, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine. For friendly, entertaining, 
for delightful dining. Yes, right now a glassful would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you Angela Lansbury in a remarkable tale of Suspense. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. I think we should just miss the storm, Mr. Harry. A rather somber place, isn't it? It gives her seclusion, and that's all she's ever asked for since she came here. That and what little spiritual comfort I've been able to give her. Uh, how long ago was that, sir? Uh, that she came here, I mean. Oh, eight years. Let me see. Oh, no, no, no. Nine. Uh, nine years ago in May. But uh, it was long before that she left the stage. Oh, she was nearly ten years in an institution, uh, a mental disorder. Uh, though it's not her mind was ever sick or I'm mistaken. They do say she's a bit on the eccentric side, though. Oh, you'll be her spiritual advisor yourself soon enough uh, when I've retired. And I want you to meet her without prejudice. One day I'll tell you what I know, which goodness knows is little enough. And uh, what I have reason to believe, which is uh, so much more... She lives completely alone. Oh, the one servant, that's all. Oh, I don't mention her, Susan. This is my new curate, uh, the Reverend Mr. Sedley. Uh, we're here to see Miss Tremaine. Well, the, does she know you are not alone? Of course, Susan, I haven't any idea. Uh, but you might have seen out of the rain while you so inform her. Oh, very well, come in. Ah, thank you. All right, Oh. If you will wait in the study, I will ask if Mademoiselle is able to see you. Uh, what in the world has got into the woman? She knows Miss Tremaine's been seeing me every fortnight at the same time for nine years. Oh, there's a picture here. Is it of her? Uh, probably. My word, she was a beauty. Oh, your father could have told you. Ah, yes, she, she was a legend of two continents. It must have been a very tragic thing to make a woman like that shut herself away. Is it true, sir, that... She sees no one but you? No one. As far as I know, she has never set foot outside this house in all the time she's been here. Nor has she ever had a single visitor beside myself. But why? Mademoiselle will see you now, Father. In her parlor, across the hall. Oh, thank you, sir. Hello, hello. Come in, come in. Thank you. I do hope you don't mind my receiving you in the dark, but I have a mortal dread of night during the storm. Oh, not enough at all, my dear. You'll find two quite comfortable chairs just there by the window, I think. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, Madeline, uh, this is my new curate, Mr. Sedley. Oh, yes, Mr. Sedley. Uh, it's a great pleasure to meet the famous beauty, even in the dark. Yes, I suppose you've heard of my beauty, Mr. Sedley. You know, as you came in, I was looking at this little gold mirror. Engraved on the back of the words, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Ah, oh, Keith. Yes, Oscar gave it to me. Oh? He said it was a magic mirror. When you are very old, Madeline, he said, you will only have to look in it to see yourself as you are now, young and radiant and a joy forever. And I've believed ever since that Oscar was really something of a magician. Because you know it's true. <laughs> Uh, was that Oscar Wilde, Mr. Main? Yes. Dear Oscar. Dear dead days. I suppose you've already heard of all the wild tales of my lurid past, Mr. Sedley? Oh, no, Mr. Main, I assure you, I... I don't believe that Father Benson has ever caught me in a very reminiscing mood, have you, Father? But since you will one day be thicker here, Mr. Sedley, perhaps it would be better if you heard the truth from me. Mr. Main, don't think I... Oh, the truth is wild enough. 
It all began, I suppose, when John Gaylord gave me my first speaking part. That was all too far ago to tell. My hair was a little darker. My voice was not quite as rich as it is now. I feel more silver than John and Nell gathered for the deeds, and my part, well, it was one of those obscure little parts that no one pays any attention to until some obscure little actress comes along and makes the start of a career with it. It was then that I first experienced what will always be to me in all the range of human feelings the supreme exaltation when you hear the full frenzied applause of an audience for you, for you alone. Oh, come in, John. You are marvelous, simply marvelous. Thank you, John. That's a little fool. A fool? I told you to play the part. Down, but it's getting worse and worse. Tonight she's absolutely furious. She's going to make trouble for you, Madeline. <laughs> trouble? What kind of trouble? Oh, you don't know Nellie Garrett. But I know my audience, don't I? Oh, Madeline, you're so young and foolish and so beautiful. Why, thank you, John. So terribly beautiful. Oh, John, you're leading up to it again, aren't you? Oh, Madeline, this play isn't going to last forever. Even you can't keep it alive much longer. Why do we make plans together now? We could have our own company. As the great John Gaylord and Mrs. Gaylord? Oh, no, no, of course not. Why, in a couple of years, you'll be as famous in your own right as Nell Garrett herself. That's why I don't want to wait a couple of years. Besides, John, I don't love you. Well, uh, do you... Love anyone? No. But when I marry, it will be, oh, it will be an up and coming young member of Parliament like this. You know. oh. You're in for it now, Madeline. So, so there you are, my son. No, no, Miss Garrett. She's meant no harm. No harm, indeed. She has merely ruined my entire last act curtain for 29 consecutive performances, hoisting her stretch clear above the ankle. Opening the stores like a music hall breakfast. It's only because of that kind of a problem. Oh, is it indeed? But as long as I play the lead in this company, I will not have my best speech in the whole play utterly ruined by rowdy applause for the gutter antics of a half-baked house. Oh, now, please, you're making a fool of yourself. And while we're on the subject, Mr. Gaylord, there are a few points I should like to discuss with you. When you help Miss Tremaine down from the swing in the second act, there's no need for you to keep your arm around her during the entire remainder of the scene. I'll admit that she appears ready to swoon at any moment. But one peach show performance is quite enough for meeting in Drury Lane. Well, really, Miss Garrett, if you can no longer hold either your audiences or your lodgers... I'll kill you for that, Mel Garrett. If I die for it, I'll kill you. and walked aimlessly out into the night, my eyes blinded with tears. Young, yet foolish as I was, I believe my poor little heart was truly broken. Crying that Del Garrett could ruin me with every theater manager in London, and I knew she would. How long I wandered through those misty streets, or where, or even what I did, I shall never know. But just as dawn was breaking, I found myself by some odd twist of fate passing by the lodgings of John Gaylord. <laughs> On a sudden impulse, I climbed the steps to his door. Yes? Madeline. Hello, John. Why, darling, did anyone see you? 
see me? Come in, come in. Where have you been? Oh, just walking, walking. Good Lord. Alone? Yes, why? Don't you know? Yes, John, I'm afraid I do. My career... Your career? Oh, my poor child. John, what is it? Don't you know that Nell Garrett's been found dead with a knife in her back? Dead? Murdered. Oh, John. The police have been looking all over London for you. I've been expecting them here every moment. For me? Of course for you. But why, Madeline? Last night you threatened to kill her in front of a dozen witnesses. Why wouldn't they be looking for you? Now, Madeline... Listen to me. Listen to me now. Where did you go? What did you do? Didn't anyone see you? Didn't you talk to anyone? Oh, no. But you've got to tell them something. What can I tell them something? Because if you don't, they'll... Yes, yes, they'll hang you, Madeline. Oh, no. Please, Madeline, we've got to think. Try to remember something. I'm so alone. If if only I had a friend. I have got a friend, Madeline. I'm your friend. Believe me. Someone who loved me enough to at least say they're with me. Oh. Who is it? Detective Tillis, Scotland Yard. Madeline, in there, quickly, the bedroom. John, don't worry, I'll tell him something. I'll hurry. I'm coming. I'm sorry to rouse you at this early hour, but... All right, sir, come in. You are Mr. John Gaylord? Yes. Of the Queen's Tales Company, Drury Lane? Yes. Can you tell me, Mr. Gaylord... Anything of the whereabouts of Miss Madeline Tremaine? Madeline Tremaine? Yes. Why, I... Did you call me, darling? Oh, excuse me. Who is this lady, Mr. Gaylord? Well, who are you? I'm from the police, madam. Police? There's been a murder. Miss Nell Garrett of the Queen's Company was found stabbed in her home last night. Nell Garrett? Yes. You know her? Why, of course, Mrs. I'm afraid, madam, that I shall have to ask you for your name. I am Madeline Tremaine. I'm so sorry that you find me somewhat in disarray. Miss Tremaine, I'm afraid I shall also have to ask you to account for your whereabouts after you left the theatre last night. Very well. Mr. Gaylord can account for my whereabouts. Well, Mr. Gaylord? Why, I, uh... You see, Inspector, it's rather a delicate matter. Because since I left the theatre last night, I've... I've been here... Is that true, Mr. Gaylord? Yes. Quite true, Inspector. Ah, I see. Is that satisfactory, Inspector? Yes, yes. Well, I don't think I need trouble you any further. For the moment. I quite understand your position, Inspector. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Yes. Well, uh, good day to you. Good day, sir. Oh, madam. Yes, John? Madeline, you shouldn't have done it. Why, they'll have a scandal all over every newspaper in the city. But a scandal is better than a hanging, isn't it? Oh, but there must have been some other way. Now they'll tear you to shreds. They won't have you in anything better than a music hall for the rest of your life. John, there won't be any scandal if... If, if what? John, it wasn't just my gift with Nell Garrett that sent me wandering through the fog last night. I was thinking about something much more serious. What do you mean? I was thinking... About what you said. What I had said? John, perhaps I don't really love you yet. But there's no one else. And you're the finest, kindest man I've ever known. Madeline. And now perhaps you've saved my life. Oh, Madeline, I I love you more than anything else in this world. But I wouldn't have you marry me for gratitude. I wouldn't marry any man for gratitude. Madeline. 
if I were to tell you that I wasn't here last night either, that I couldn't explain my whereabouts. Oh, I see. Would you still marry me? Yes, John. I will marry you. Roma Wines of Pino Angela Lansbury in A Thing of Beauty. Roma Wines presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Truman Bradley for Roma Wines. Whether you serve wine infrequently or often, enjoy the better taste of Roma Wines. Yes, Roma wines give you more pleasure with every sip. A better three ways. In fuller bouquet, richer body, and better taste. To bring you better tasting wine, Roma begins with California's choicest grapes. Then with ancient skill and winemaking resources unmatched in America, Roma master vintners guide this great treasure unhurriedly to tempting taste perfection. These choice wines are then placed with mellow Roma wines of years before. And from these reserves, the world's greatest reserves of fine wines, Roma later selects for your pleasure. This holiday weekend, enjoy rich Roma California port or tokay. Serve after dinner or in a tall glass with ice and soda as a refreshing warm weather cooler. Serve any way Roma tastes better. That's why more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wine. That's R-O-M-A. Roma. Your best buy in good taste. And now Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Miss Angela Lansbury, who as Madeline Tremaine resumes the recital of her brilliant and stormy career. It is a tale told to two clergymen in a darkened room. A tale well calculated to keep them and you in suspense. Gentlemen. Oh, yes. Please do, Mr. Lane. It's most absorbing. Indeed it is. <laughs> really? I hope you don't mind the lights turned off. It's the storm. I suppose I am a sort of an elemental creature. But I always love to sit here and have it dark when it's stormy outside. Not at all. Well, then. Our marriage is a very happy one. Not entirely in the high tradition of grand passion, but a thoroughly comfortable, civilized relationship. Until something happened which is so often a tragic feature of wedded life between two stage personalities. You see, for the first two seasons, John and I always played together. And then managers began to ask for me alone. What could I do? I was young, just reaching the peak of my career. John was past his prime and popularity. And so at last he had no longer even tried to have a career, but lived along on false hopes and idle dreams and tiresome reminiscences. We both took up those little hobbies to pass the time away. Poor little spout. It was very difficult for both of us. And then, for me, came the time and opportunity that every actress dreams of. 
I've got the most wonderful news. The most wonderful, wonderful news. Is that you, Madeline? I'll tell you all about it later. Yes, John. Come in here, Ramona. I want to show you something. Where are you? I'm in here in the den. Oh, good heavens. Now what? I thought I'd keep it a secret until I had my first exhibit, but I, I couldn't wait. I've taken up etching. Etching? Yes. Oh, here. What's that? You. What? Well, it's only the copper plate, of course. You see, the whole principle of etching is... Imagine a cow. What's the matter? You almost knocked over that vat of nitric acid. One drop of that on your beautiful white skin would burn a hole right through. Well, if you must have that sort of thing around, don't you? Well, of course, that's the whole thing. You see, the sketch simply scrapes the wax off the copper plate. Then you drop it in the acid. Well, that's very interesting, darling, but... Oh, yes. Well, tell me, uh, what happened in town? Anything? Anything. Everything. Plans, eh? Uh... Anyone ask for me? Oh, yes, everyone asked you, John. I told them you were well. No, I mean, uh, well, I thought there might be a couple of yes. plays for a change. I might consider something. Yes. John, John, darling, how are you on Romeo? Romeo? Yes, you see, Maxwell has finally asked me to do a Shakespeare repertory. And high time, by the way. I'm starting in Romeo and Juliet, and I... Madeline, had... why didn't you tell me Romeo? We'll be a sensation. It's just the very thing I need. I know. Now, oh, I can do it all right. It'll take off a little weight. Yes. Right up in the lines. I've done it before, you know. Oh, John, oh, Madeline. Oh, you're the dearest wife and the best friend a man ever had. You know, lately I've actually wondered sometimes if you might not think I wasn't. Oh, my darling. Uh, I know, John, but don't count too heavily on this. I'm, I'm not quite sure yet that things will work out. Work right? out? How else can they work out but perfectly? Very well. I'd like to begin reading here at home tomorrow. cherishing. Good night, good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. Sleep dwell upon thine eyes, peace in thy breast. Would I were sleep in peace, so sweet to rest. Yes, yes. yes. But you see, on those last, you should really already be moving off the stage. You, you don't want to make too much of them. After all, the scene really ends when Juliet leaves the balcony. But I know, but you can't just throw them away, Madeline, dear. Those are very famous lines. Yes, but, John, we mustn't think so much in terms of lines as a performance. Pardon, mademoiselle. Yes, Suzette. Monsieur Alexandre Duncan is here. Oh, yes, show him in. Oh, mademoiselle. Alan Duncan, what's that young ham coming around for? Well, John, I've been meaning to say... Hello, Madeline. Hello, Alex. Do you know my husband? Oh, why, yes, of course. How do you do, Mr. Tremaine? The name is Gaylord. Oh, yes. Of course, Mr. Gaylord. Well, I say, aren't I the luckiest fellow in the world? Are you? John, you've been playing Romeo opposite Madeline Tremaine. Oh, Madeline, when I got your cable, I could hardly believe it. I jumped on the boat without even packing a bag. Is something wrong? John, I've been trying to tell you, but I, I, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. If I've interrupted, John. No, no, it's all right, Alec. John, please don't make a scene. I had to have someone to rehearse with me until Alec got here, and I knew you wouldn't be the slightest help to me if you thought... Oh, man. John, why must you make an issue of this? I've always known you're a proper selfish woman, but I never would have believed that you could do anything quite so vile. How dare you speak to me that way? You didn't really think that a man with a 40-inch waistline and a double chin could ever play Romeo, did you? I say... Get out of here. Get out. Get out. Get out. I say... Oh, I have to go and apologize, I suppose. 
talk to you. John? Madeline, be careful of that answer. Thank you. Oh, John, I'm terribly sorry for what I said. It was beef day, man. Oh, it's quite all right, Madeline. Oh, John, I knew you'd see it that way when you came to see it. Yes. Because, you see, I am going to play Romeo. Oh, really, John? Must we go through it all over again? Madeline, I've forgiven and forgotten a lot of things since we've been married. I've pushed you out in front. I've given you the spotlight. Watch your regard for me become somewhat less than for your servant and somewhat more for your dog. John, now, look here. But this... If, if, if only for my, my self-respect, I will not allow to dangle before my eyes the thing that I wanted most in all the world, except your beauty that I gave it up for. The thing I've been wanting so much I didn't dare admit it to myself. And then to have you snatch it from me. No, Madeline, no, no. Waistlines and double chins can be concealed, but a mean spirit never. This one thing you can do for me, and you will. John, really, you're You see, I've always known that you married me to save your career and to keep my mouth shut. But there's one thing you haven't known. Where I was the night Nell Garrett was murdered. Where were you? I was at Nell Garrett's home. Well, that explains quite a number of things, doesn't it, John? Well, where did you get that gun? I always thought someday I might need one. <laughs> Don't come near me, John. Very well, John, I warned you. Oh, you monster! No! No, monster! <laughs> If it had, I should be horribly disfigured to this day. Well, have I bored you, Mr. Sedley? Oh, no. Oh, no, Mr. Tremaine. Goodness gracious. Well, Madeline, the storm is almost over. I, I think we'd best push on. Must you? Well, excuse me for just a moment. Oh, of course, my dear. Oh, my word. The poor woman. Yes, yes. I, I say... Look here. What is it? This mirror. It's not a mirror at all. It has a picture pasted in it. The photograph that's in the study. Oh, poor Maggie. Father Benjamin, Mademoiselle would like to speak with you a moment before you go. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course. Very well. I'll only be a moment here, Sedley. This way, Father. Thank you. Ah, Father. Well, Madeline... You may turn the lights on, Mr. Seth, as you go. You may wait. So that is your young curate, Father Benson. Uh, yes, do you like him? He seems like a dear boy, but... Uh, but what, Madeline? I'm afraid I can't see him again. Madeline, why? Well, I don't want to hurt his feelings, but it would not be the same. You have been my only true friend in all these years, 
And when you are gone, I would rather be alone again. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, but Mrs. Stokes is outside. Her little girl is down. Go away. She heard you were here. She... Go away. Medicine. Go away. Go, go. Come, sir. Go away. Go away. Good Lord. Poor. It was too much for her. Yes. Well, she killed them both, of course. The woman and her husband's eye. Oh, I, I, I think I always must have known it. All these years, she's, she's lived a lie. Oh, yes, but that's not the lie that's hurt her. It was the acid. Acid? Didn't you see her face, sir? You forget, my boy, that I am blind. She has no face. No. Show myself listening to suspense, and I hope we were able to send a few chills up and down your spines tonight. Good night. And that was Angela Lansbury in A Thing of Beauty. Marvelous. As I said at the top of the show, losing a living legend like Angela Lansbury is always painful, especially because she was such an important connection between the world of today and the world of then. Still, we should be thankful that we had her for this long. And there will always be the marvellous performances she left behind, available for us to enjoy for generations to come. I hope you indulge in a few Lansbury treats in the coming weeks. I know I will be. It only remains for me to say thank you for joining me today. Remember, if you'd like more of this show, then there are almost 200 bonus editions available now, along with all kinds of other Golden Age of Hollywood treats over at patreon.com slash attaboysecrets. I will see you again very soon, but until then, take super care of yourselves, and bye for now. How has Hollywood changed since you started? Oh, it'd be hard to, hard to define how, how Hollywood has changed. There are no studios, there are none of the, the things that we held dear at the time, to be under contract to a studio, to be owned by them, and to be put into their movies. And of course, in those days, there were so many movies. Every, you know, every week there was a new one coming out. And the whole business of making movies, it's all gone. I mean, I, it does exist, but in a totally different, very impersonal way. In those days, if you were under contract to a studio, they supported you, you know, and you, you went out there and you went to previews at nights. You'd go to some of the little movie houses around town and all the stars would go and sit in the back row and watch their movie with an audience for the first time. I asked Robert Taylor. <laughs> Robert did he, Taylor. I, I loved, did, did, did he like that time, those red carpets in the mm. red? He mm. said he loved it. Yeah. He loved the contract days of the mm. studio. But they told you what you were going to play, right? You didn't oh. have a choice. You did not. You did not have a choice. And uh, I ran into problems with being cast in movies that I had no interest whatsoever in being in. But because I was under contract, I couldn't fight them on it, and I tried. What was it like to go into a movie you didn't want to do? It was, it was rough and tough. 
uh, but you did it. I mean, if you're if you're a professional actor, which I was, you know, I was tr a trained actor. I wasn't a a, a peach queen, uh, the queen of the peaches, or mm -hmm. you know anything like that. I, w I was an actress, so I was prepared to put on the clothes, take on the character, and be something other than myself. Mm -hmm.